0: Welcome to a Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to Redemption'sHill.com. It's good to be with you. We're going to jump right into uh, reading the text for this morning. We're in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 13, verses 8 through uh, 14 uh, today. So this is the the word of the Lord. Owe oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than we first believed the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, put, or, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder for a, a moment um, before we kind of jump in. If I could just present a question in front of you. Uh, No warm-up, no long lead-in to try and prep your your answer, but this has been kind of on my mind all week long, and this has been in in line with my prayer all week long as well. So I'll just kind of lay the question before you. Is there room today for God to speak to you here and now? Is there room for that? Is it possible? Was it even plausible for you as we walked in this morning? Was it on the table as an option the, that the God of the universe, the, the, the Holy Spirit is our counselor and our comforter and our, our corrector, the one that shows us the love of Jesus, is it even possible on the table that the Creator would meet you, speak to you, and do something in your heart today? Is it possible that he would awaken you, get your attention, and speak to your heart? I, mean, I, I hope it's on the table. In this text, Paul, with an urgency that we may find kind of alarming or surprising, He declares something to our hearts, to our lives, to our rhythms, to the moments that we're living in in right now. Uh, He declares something to him and he pleads with our hearts to wake up from the sleep that we may be in. To all of us. This isn't just to a certain group of people. These are people he believes are saved, are following Jesus, do know the gospel. He pleads with those people who are believers will you wake up from the sleep that you're in? Will you snap out of the darkness? Will you snap out of the autopilot, of the slumber, of the distraction, and realize that there's a battle raging around you for your soul and for your attention. And there's a world doing every single thing it can to lull you to sleep the entire way. There's a world that is trying to, to, to press you back into the darkness that Jesus bled to pull you out of. So in that, with that as the backdrop, is there room to hear from God if you're asleep? If there is aspects of your faith and your affection that, that, that he wants to speak to, is that possible? We hit this text at a perfect time it's late in summer, like it you can look around, we've got a ton of families still on vacation, and that's been the, the rhythm that July everybody's looking around, like do we start yet or Are people coming, or like hey that's just where we 're at, but at this moment with vacations and distraction, all the things going on it it might be the the time that God wants to show up physically and speak to your heart in this moment of distraction and summer I 'm not sure about you, but that's what I'm hungry for. I, I don't want empty repetitions of gathering without the Lord speaking to us. I don't want to say that the Holy Spirit is our counselor that never actually counsels. I want room for the Spirit of God to draw near, speak to us, and, and hear this. I, I want the Spirit to, to lead and direct and correct in love. And I understand correction and love can go together from a holy and good Father. That's the hope. Man, I hope that he would speak to us. As we kind of recover our bearings and what's been happening in Romans, we were trying really hard not to get lost. In chapters 1 through 11, all of that was Paul laying out uh, salvation for us to behold. That we are saved by grace alone, not through your works. We're saved by faith alone, not by all the cool things that you can get done, and we're saved by Christ alone. He's the only door, he's the only path, and he is the only way. And Paul's just trying to show us there's no way for you to save yourself no matter what you do. You cannot justify, you cannot redeem, you cannot deal with your problem of your sin, and yet in that place of of complete brokenness that you are in, in that helpless spot, God meets you by sending Jesus for you. He sends Jesus to overcome and fulfill all the things that you and I cannot. And this is the beauty that Paul labored to lay before us, that humanity is, and this is what we don't like to look at, humanity is far more broken than we ever could have imagined, and yet Jesus is far more sufficient to meet us in our brokenness. Jesus is enough, and he'll meet you where you're at. He'll step in, heal your brokenness with his perfection. Now Paul was adamant about showing us that salvation is not earned. Like he teed off on this again. Like I don't care if you have the best Jewish heritage possible; it doesn't mean you're saved. I don't care what you've been doing. I, I, I don't care. It is Jesus and Christ alone. Over and over and over, you cannot say that you earn salvation because Jesus is the one who does it. So He needs to be the one that is worshipped and given all of the credit. Salvation is a gift of grace, not earned, not given to the enlightened or the smart or the better or the moral. And Paul now shifts at showing us, okay, what is following that Jesus looks like after he's already grabbed your heart? And a, a way to think about this is Paul's teaching us how we integrate the free grace that we received into the ins and outs of our lives. Because the reality of when you are saved, like you don't know how to perfectly do it, he saves you, he grabs you, and then he's teaching you how to live. This is what Paul is showing us. This is how you follow Jesus and the rhythms of a crazy world. This is what a life that is called out of darkness and into light looks like. And to angle at this today through the topic of love. How does your love affect the way that you walk in the light that Jesus has pulled you into? And love probably shouldn't be a surprise for us. In chapter uh, 12, we saw that we love God through being and living like we are a living sacrifice. Uh, We saw that we love the church, which is the body, our fellow believers and uh, brothers and sisters, by using our gifts, serving, and not thinking too highly of ourselves. So we serve the body. We pick up speakers. We help with kids. We do all the things that are needed, and we don't puff out our chest going, like, I got more gifts than that person. I'm more valuable than that person. We love the church by genuinely using what God has put in our hands. We love fellow believers by hating evil and clinging to to what is good, We love the world around us by refusing to hate our enemies like everyone else. Uh, and we love our community as well by submitting to the governing authorities. We preached that one last week. Thank goodness we're not completely empty this week after preaching that one. Um, everything so far in chapter 12 was put through a filter of love. This is what following Jesus looks like. And it leads us to this kind of crescendo moment now in the text where, where Paul puts it all together for us. Right, all these types of love, and he goes, okay, here, here's the understanding. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. It may be easy to write this off as some surfacey nicety or some politically correct, vague thing that doesn't actually mean anything. But he's going to show us, no, no, no th- this is really it. If you want to obey the Father, if you want to live a life pleasing to God, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to live in the light, it's going to take you Loving your neighbor as you love yourself. This isn't some vague nicety. This is at the core of what being a follower of Christ looks like. Hopefully, we'll show more of what that means as we move forward. Um, First, though, I remember in my notes, I said not long ago, but we've been married 17 years, so it's probably quite a bit ago. I I remember not long after Allison and I were married, uh, I needed to buy a, a vehicle. And so I had no credit at all. Uh, when I bought my first vehicle back in Des Moines, Iowa. And no credit, no credit the, granted, it was a win for me. Right? That was actually a good thing, because I could have been like all the other guys or several of my friends who walked into Best Buy and saw the sign that said, free credit card, apply now. And they walked out with a $2,000 sound system to go in their $1,500 car. Thank God I didn't have credit. Right? It was a good thing. But because I did not have credit, when I bought this Chevy Trailblazer, uh, I had to pay some sort of insane interest rate. I don't remember what it was, but I'll guesstimate it was probably like 9 to 11%. I remember being uh, coming back and being like, Allie, I got it. She's like, what was the interest rate? It was this. She was like, you did what? Right, it, was, it was high. So uh, Ali, my wife, and I worked extremely hard uh, the next year to pay that thing off. Uh, We were pretty lucky at the time. We didn't have uh, a lot of things to pay for. We had a pretty good living situation. We didn't have any other debts or school debt or credit card debt or anything else like that. So we're paying like three and four extra payments a month on this thing because I realize you're giving a ton of money away in interest. So, I mean, we're just working hard and we paid all of those payments until the day that we got to walk into this credit union that was in a grocery store in Des Moines. We walked in with a swagger and we got to the window and say, hey, I'd like to pay off my loan. I'd I'd like to close it out, right? And and, and you kind of of feel good. You're like, I'm going to owe you $0 after this. Done. You know how many payments I'm going to make after this? None. I'm never going to see you again. I'll be done. I'll owe you nothing. I I will have no obligation towards you. It will be finished, and I'll never see you again, right? It's a good feeling. I've paid it off. I'm done. The obligation is finished. And I've sat with several of you as you've kind of looked at me and been like, hey, man, we did it. We did it, we, we no longer owe anything. We paid off our student debts, hallelujah, we're out from underneath of it. We don't owe anything, we're, we're done, we're, we're free. Paul's kind of drawing on this understanding of paying off debts in the text when he says, owe no to, nothing to anyone except to love one another. But here's the idea, because he's doing a little bit of a reverse play on it. He said, hey, we can pay off our debt to the bank, to the credit card, to the credit union, to the store, Uh, to the the government for our our loan. We can pay off all of those debts. We can have a a no-obligation situation if we pay them off, but our debt to love our neighbor is never discharged. It's permanent. You never get out from under. You never do. And R.C. Sproul says love is a perpetual obligation, an indebtedness given to us by Jesus. Do you feel the weightiness of what Paul's laying before us? You never settle your debt of love. You're never done paying. Those moments that you walk up to and be like, I've given so much love. I've poured out love for five, ten years. It's somebody else's turn. I'm done. I'm done. Let, let somebody else do it. I'm, I'm tired of doing it. You, you never get to that point. You can't claim that you've paid your fair share or you've paid your dues or you're done. Love is what we are called to forever in Christ. And when I, I just asked you for a temperature check. In that, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about an obligation of Love, do you feel like you've paid your dues? Do you feel like you should be done? Do you feel like you're finished, that you're tired of it, that you don't want to do it anymore? I mean, we're coming out of a pandemic when people are tired and so many things going on. You're like, hey, man, I've given enough. My sacrifice is over. I'm, I'm finished. I'm done sharing burdens. I'm done sharing time. I'm done sharing my life. I'm just, I don't, I don't want to be obligated to anything anymore. How, how do you feel? Is that where you're at? We you think, no, I still got more. See, there are those who try and use this text to kind of step around it and say, no, 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 Paul was actually just saying that loans are bad and you shouldn't take loans. You're like, well, Jesus gave a parable about talents and like taught us what to do with interest. So I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying. The Bible would tell you that predatory loans are bad. Why? Because if you try and hit a home run off of your neighbor, if you hose them over to make money, that is not loving and kind. And if you take a loan that you full well know that you'll never be able to, to pay back, that's not okay. And that's sin because you're stealing from someone knowing that you'll never pay them back. But if that's not it, he's he's teaching us sincerely about the obligation of love. The word says believers are meant to be known by their love. They're they're simple things, simple texts in the Bible that I don't think we pay attention to. It means, yes, the world around you may look at you and be like, their morality and the way they do things, it's it's crazy. But they should look at you and go like, I don't understand why they love that way. I don't like what they believe. I don't like what they do. I I don't like their faces. But man, they love well. We're supposed to be known by it. And Paul, to guys together here, love a fulfilling law, saying the one who has loved another has fulfilled the law. Joyfully, some will say, there it is. That's the main thing. All you got to do is love, baby. That's it. And if we do that, if we just love one another, we can forget the law. There's no rules we can... We can just say, hey, if we've loved well, then I've already fulfilled it. I can I not pay attention to any of the other stuff. I can ditch the laws of God because I've already fulfilled them. If I love well, there's no rules. Everything's good. I can kind of do what I want. So here's the mindset if I love others well, if I'm a good person, if I'm a nice person, like who cares if I got a little lust? If I love people well, like who cares if I'm drinking too much? Who cares if I have pride issues or anger issues or, or don't want to serve uh, my neighbor, but I'll, but I'll love them and smile at them? And what we tend to do is go like, hey man, at least I'm loving. You can kind of just forget all of the other stuff. But this is the opposite of what Paul is trying to show us. He's not telling you that the law allows you to, or that loving allows you to forego and forget the laws of God. He's saying when you love, it's, it's literally the, the means and part of what accomplishes the laws of God. Love is at the center of our ability to obey, meaning if you can't love the neighbors around you as you love yourself, you cannot possibly fulfill the obligation of, of the law. Love is at the center. And even understanding this, when there's certain laws of God that, that we hear, like, man, that's a bummer. You have to understand he's giving these laws to help us keep love of our neighbor around There's a quote that I saw from from Tony Morita from a um, book or commentary I was reading uh, today, and I I put it on a slide just because I thought it was helpful. We should point out love is not sentimentalism, it has object content found in God's law. So love and law are not enemies, they're in laws, united by their relationship to Jesus. We can't say it clearly enough. It's become commonplace to equate love with this vague sentimentality. And the love that we see or we talk about in culture has become so vague that each person kind of gets to define what love is themselves. But then that makes it so airy that it can never actually be defined at all. So you can't ever wrap your mind around it, but biblical do- love doesn't work this way. It has a form. It has structure. It has rules. Like, you can tell if you're loving or not by looking at the law and the things in the Bible. It's, it's, it's not, a, I'm not really sure. Like, it, it's pretty easy to tell. Paul then makes the connection that we may fail to or we may not try and look to. He ties together the Ten Commandments with love seamlessly. Saying you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not murder, and you shall not steal, and you shall not covet. And any other commandment, right, he ropes them all in, has love at its core. Each and every one of them. They're actually commands involving love. And those commandments can be summed up or understood by this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Why can those commands be summed up with the command to love our neighbor as ourselves? He says, well, because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We may still be wondering, okay, well, why, Paul, are you trying to tie love and the commands together? Like, why are you trying to do this? What's the correlation? What's the connection? How do, I, how do I understand how things like adultery, murder, theft, and coveting are actually tied uh, to, to love? Like, how do we get it? And adultery, murder, and theft, they may not big, be big stretches for us. Like, it's not hard to see that adultery is a lack of love towards your spouse and your family. It's wrong because it involves lust and breaking your covenant and rebellion and selfishness. But it's also wrong because it disregards your spouse, the the family, the community, and the people around you and your parents and all the other stuff. It goes, you know what? I don't really care about the love of the community and the people around me. I just want to follow the the desire of my heart to go after that person. You, You can understand how adultery is a lack of love. Murder is pretty easy too. You can't declare your undying love to someone as you kill them. And theft is easy as well. You can't tell another person, man, I love you so much. That's mine now. It it doesn't work that way. Love is about faithfulness, not adultery. Love is about seeing others flourish, not killing them. Love is about blessing your neighbor, not taking what is theirs. But what about coveting? That one, like, it seems like the harmless one, right? Like, it's, it's not, it's in my mind. It's not that big of a deal. Coveting is when you want what God has not given you is when you want what someone else has and you can't be content with what you have. So in coveting, you can covet a million things. You can covet your neighbor's uh, spouse, his kids, his family, life, car, house, reputation, their gifts, their position, their personality, their job, their authority in the world. You can covet someone's physical attributes. Again, the question may be, well, like how does that cause a love issue? Right? If I just kind of like, Really like, I wish I had their car. Like, how's how's that how's that filter into love? And the understanding is, coveting doesn't happen in a vacuum or away on an island away from everyone else. Coveting happens among community and among other people. So then it spills into people and how you care for them and how you perceive them and how you treat them and and how you look at them and how you speak to them. Like it filters into all of those things. We can tend to think of coveting only in this laser focused way, saying, "Well." You know, I don't really like strongly want my neighbor's life or or their finances, so I'm fine. I'm not really coveting, but coveting more often shows itself not directly on like that. Coveting mostly shows itself from an angle in our our lives. And the example is this: has has there ever been a time when you heard of someone getting something? Maybe they get a job or a new house. I'm like, your old house was great. Why'd you do that? Or they get a a new car or like a, a position or Anything, if you've ever had a time when someone gets something and something inside you goes, ugh, I don't deserve that. Why do they get that? They haven't worked for that. Man, they lied to me last year. they like, they shouldn't have that. See, that thing inside of you that begins to think it's ridiculous that this other person got this thing, they're not worthy of it, and I wanted it. Man, that's how coveting shows up more often. Somebody reaches something, gets something, and, and, you, and you feel this like disdain or bitterness that wells up. And that most definitely will affect your love because when that happens, when someone gets something that you want, when you're coveting something about someone else's life or, or their, their demeanor, or gifts, or personality, or anything like that, what's going to begin to happen in your relation to them? Maybe some passive aggressive comments. What does that mean? Oh, nothing. You gossip about them, you, like if you see them get like, hey man, they don't work very hard and they get that job that you wanted or that you deserve, but then you're going to go to your other work and be like, can you believe, can you believe they got that? That's, that's gossip. Or maybe you just avoid them, give them the cold shoulder. Maybe sometime when they needed help with something, you go like, you have everything you need, you don't need my help. See, these are really common ways to react. We treat people differently when they get things that we want too much. We begin to resent them, judge them, deal harshly in our mind with them. Instead of being grateful for them, seeing them as as neighbors, as people made in the image of God, we see them as annoyances or problems. Coveting may seem innocent, but it's not. It'll quickly destroy your love the foundation of community and it'll erode the ability to even be kind to others. And What Paul is showing us why he's tying it to the commands is a heart that's out of control and coveting is what leads you to adultery and murder and theft in the first place. Right? Nobody jumps from like nothing to murder. Like there's steps and Paul's saying, hey, coveting is one of those steps. The statement, love your neighbor as yourself is one that needs to be examined as well. And We can hear that and then hear things like, okay, to love others, you first need to learn to love yourself, right? That's that's what we hear everywhere. If you want to love others well, you've got to learn to love yourself. It seems to suggest that putting aside the love of others for as long as it takes to love yourself is the way that we should live. That we can effectively not love well others with a free pass, with immunity, for as long as we possibly need in order to love ourselves. And you know what? That, that logic is considered wisdom and it's untouchable in our world. Hey man, like I noticed this thing, or why didn't you? Or, or, I'm, I'm just working on loving myself. Like I, I'm, I'm trying to get rest and, and, and we'll hide I'm like, trying to be healthy and get my family healthy. I, I'm, just, I'm just working on me. Like, oh yeah. They've got it together. That's smart. The problem with that mindset, though, is it puts and pits self-love against neighborly love. As if they're enemies. As if you can only do one and you have to be unhealthy in the other. As if they're competing forces that can't work together in a healthy way. But what if they aren't competing forces, but they're complementary forces? What if our ability to love our neighbor well is intrinsically tied to our ability to love ourselves well? What if our ability to love ourselves well and in a healthy way is affected greatly if we don't love other people? What if we lack love for neighbor and it actually distorts our self-love? Do you, do you hear that? When you, when you begin to not love others well, things get unhealthy in you, and then that begins to actually turn back in on itself and change the way that you feel about yourself and how you, how you, uh, how you uh, do things in your own life. What if deprioritizing true love for others is actually what takes life away from us? See, this is what culture will tell you. If you want to get life, if you want to get it back, if you want to be healthy, then just forget everybody else and learn to love yourself. But what the Bible tells you if, you, if you do that, if you forget love of other people, it's actually going to be a vacuum that steals and sucks out the life and peace and joy in your life. When we don't love others, first and foremost, we're breaking the laws of God. But here's the thing. When you stop loving others, it gets harder and harder and harder to start again. Why? Because you become unhealthier and unhealthier and unhealthier. The mind tells you I'll become healthier that way. But you tend to actually turn in on yourself. When you turn in on yourself and you make the world about you and your comfort and your stuff, you you actually get a distorted perception of reality that'll affect the way that you even feel about yourself. I by no means am advocating for ignoring self-love or self-care. But guys, we've gone way too far with words like boundaries. Way farther than the Bible would ever tell us to do. What I'm saying is the Bible seems to advocate working on self-love at the same time as you work on love for neighbor. Right? It's, it's not against, like the Bible says over and over, love your neighbor as yourself. It's pro-love for self. It would just tell you, don't only love yourself. Work on them together we cannot forego love of neighbor to get to love of self you'll never get there and your heart will get probably pretty sick and distorted along the way it's troubling to see the epidemic around the church all over the west believers are abandoning loving the body not just the neighbor but even the body their fellow brothers and sisters and we see it with people refusing to serve with their gifts refusing to share their lives, refusing to share their time, making themselves, uh, never making themselves known, never being present, hiding all the time from everyone else. And it's all hidden in language of rest and health and what's best for my family, which in turn affects our spiritual health and in turn affects the ability for us to love our neighbor. We have to cling to the words of Jesus I've been just utterly shocked at some of the very simplistic words of Jesus that ring more true to me now than they ever have before. What did Jesus warn us of? Those who would try and save their life will lose it. And those who lay their life down will find it. This is the upside down rhythm of the kingdom of God. An unhealthy form of self-protection that doesn't love others well will ultimately steal your life, joy, and peace, not give it to you. It'll ultimately hurt you. The culture will tell you, fight as hard as you can for you. Do what's best for you. And Jesus says, I poured myself out and I invite you to do the same. That's where you'll find me and I'll meet you there. Second part of the verse, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from the sleep. For salvation is near to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The, Those are the words I want to sit in and just hear and ask the Spirit to work on. Make no provision for the flesh. To gratify its desires. Believer, make no provision. Paul with urgency tells us to wake up from our sleep, which is a call to vigilance, intentionality, alertness, diligence. There's something about the world that loves to lull us to sleep. To make us like bears who hibernate. We're like alive, but we're not actually living. Because we're too distracted by the treasure of the world and the desires of the world and the things that we want to where we kind of just shut down life and the pursuits of God that we're meant to be awake to, we actually fall asleep and we shut those things down. Paul wants to lovingly or maybe, no, it's lovingly. He wants to take us by the shoulders and shake us and say, hey, will you wake up? Believer, son or daughter, take care. Take care to see how you're living. Take care to see what you're awake to, to what you're paying attention to. Remember that you're called into a new kingdom. Believer, you're called into a new mission. We we, we state it all the time. You are not your own. You're called into the mission of God to see others who are far off come to know him. You're called into something. You're called to love God by loving others as you love yourself. Wake up. You're called to be transformed, to literally be made new in Christ where one layer after another after another is being peeled back of your heart and the God who is good begins to refine you over and over and over and change your heart and your mind. Another way to look at things is we can easily be awake to just the wrong things. More awake, more alert, more vigilant, more intentional on things like our hobbies what did we go pretty hard after last week? More, more awake to our political leanings. More awake to our, our, our lusts or our desires or our wants or our reputation or our job or our social engagement or our social standing. And Paul saying, hey, please, be awake to the right things. Invest in what matters. Live as if you're... Life matters. Why why is Ecclesiastes so important? In, in the words uh, that we find in there, teach me to number of my days. Teach me to understand that my life is like vapor. It's like smoke. It'll be here one day and it'll be gone. Let me be awake to the right things while I am alive. Let me invest in what you have called me to do. Let me live as if I'm purchased with a price by the blood of Jesus. Again, don't live like everyone else who's dead and asleep. Wake up. The Bible tells Christians. That we are saved in Ephesians 2.8. That's that's past. It's already been done. We are saved. Then in Romans 5, it says that, hey, and we're being saved. That's present. So there's we are saved. And then we're being saved, yeah? And then it says in Matthew 24, and you and you will be saved. Future? Yeah. There's a past, present, and future reality to our salvation. Paul is saying, do not live like future judgment and salvation are, are not coming. He isn't trying to scare you to work off your salvation. He's saying, hey, God wants to work out part of your salvation in the here and now, but you're too asleep to see it. He wants to bring beauty out of your life and out of your heart right now. Don't just rely on, I have been saved, it's done, I'm going to hold on until glory. Understand, thank God that you've done all those things. You came while I was dead in my trespasses and you've done all the work for me, but you want to do a work now. Let me be alive to what you want to tell me what you want to do in me and what you want to change around me now. In the same way he says our debt of love is never paid, it's never done with, he's reminding us that the working of our salvation isn't done either. He wants to work out your salvation in the here and now. God has saved us through Jesus if our faith is in Christ. But the Holy Spirit is still wanting to refine us in the here and now. Again, if we aren't careful, we'll forget about that. Get distracted by shiny toys and fall asleep. Believer, the word for you today is God isn't done working in you and through you. Do you believe that? Are you like, yeah, yeah, sure, we have to say yes, but I don't actually believe it. God has a plan, work in your heart he wants to do, and mission he wants to accomplish through you. This is not some airy prosperity message like, God has more for you. No, I'm not talking about your bank account. He has more sanctification, which may hurt, but it prepares you for eternity. Do you understand if, you, if God never worked in your heart, you wouldn't want heaven? Because you would hate that place. He has more working out in your heart to do, to prepare you for eternity. And then he still wants to make his appeal to your neighbor through you, through your life, through your witness. But if you fall asleep, that won't happen. So wake up, get up, see what God is calling to you. And he's not done yet. When when it says, men, they will know you by your love. If we're too asleep, how would they even see that we love? Because they'll see a a, a group of people that love themselves a whole lot, but they don't really love other people. He's calling you out of that. What's a really good way to fall asleep and not be present in the way that God wants you to be? Paul says it's to walk in and flirt with works of darkness around you. When he talks about darkness, he's talking about ways of the world, sin, things that lead you in the wrong place. It's to park yourself near and in things, and to flirt with things that want to hurt you. Then he lists some of them. Orgies and drunkenness. You're like, well, I'm not doing that. Check. He also talks about places of like sensuality that ignite desire in you. Places of sexual immorality. Then he just says, places that cause you to quarrel. Places that stir your jealousy. Get away from them. He says, don't walk in those things, but instead put on Jesus Christ. Instead of putting on those things that want to hurt you, put on Christ. Do not make a provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What he's saying? He's like, hey man, do not put yourself in a place of proximity to where your flesh can draw you in and cause you to sin. Be awake to fight sin ruthlessly. And to do that, we have to stop flirting with it and begin to kill it to cut it off at the root. Too often we fall into repeated patterns of sin because we repeatedly put ourselves in bad situations. Spots where we can slip up, believing we'll be fine or it's not a big deal. This is why Paul says friends stop. Stop making provisions for the flesh. Stop giving your flesh countless opportunities to cause you to slip and fall. An old country preacher once said, if you desire to overcome drunkenness, we best not tie our horse to the post in front of the saloon anymore. This is the epitome of making provisions for the flesh. You're putting yourself in bad situations over and over. To wake up is to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Because most of the time when I do, I fall on my face. See, if you have a problem with alcohol, stop going to happy hour. If the gym you're going to is causing you lust issues, you need to change places. If you have an issue with rage when you look at Facebook, then you should shut it down. If your Instagram account causes you to have jealousy and coveting and and frustration all the time, then take it off. See, if there's something that causes you to mute your soul and it takes your time and your affection and your attention, all of the time he's going, you are in darkness and asleep. Take it out. You're making provisions for the flesh. You're giving your flesh opportunity. And it's getting you. Why don't you cut that stuff out? I don't know what your thing right now right, be, it might be. But Paul's asking if there's something that's causing you to sin or mute your heart or not to love others the Holy Spirit of God may be asking you to put it down. Maybe he's been asking you for a while to put it down. If God would say, hey, there's something that's hurting you and putting you to sleep, if it's stealing your joy or your peace or some habit or some rhythm that's causing you to ignore God or treat people poorly or causing you not to love your family or lead your family or be a part of church community, whatever the instant may, instance may be, if there's something today would you be willing to hear and respond in faith if God would show it to you? Here's my sneaking suspicion. Many of us probably have something that we've been wrestling with a while and we've felt for a while, hey, you should, not, you should probably stop that. Hey, you should probably put that away. And maybe today is the day that God would be like, hey, I affirm that. I've been trying to tell you that for a while. The beauty of the gospel is, is Jesus called us out of the darkness and into light. He's paid for our sin, made a way for us to be adopted and restored and sealed for le- forever. But Paul says each and every season in the middle of that, stay awake. And make sure that you're not making provisions of the flesh to hurt you, to steal your joy, to choke out the light in life that God has paid for to bring you into. The question today is, if you have ears, will you hear is God calling you to lay down something, to put something away, to stop something, to, to not make provisions anymore? And here, here would be my ask. Like we're, we're, on, we're on the landing descent. As we close the song, we'll, we'll do a couple songs, have a time for communion. Would you ask, Holy Spirit, whether there something you want to show me? Is there something that you want me to do? Is there something I need to lay down? Are there, is, there, is there a pattern? Is there a thing? Is there a rhythm that's just broken that you're, you're trying to bring me into life by, by making me pay attention to it? And the, if the answer is yes, here's the thing. Praise God for that. The Father disciplines those that he loves. He, he corrects us because he loves us. If he didn't care, he'd we'll go, run, whatever, I don't care. but I'll be honest with you as i prepared for the text over the week, there, there are things, specifically one thing, that God said, hey man, I've been messing with you for a bit about that. You stop. Okay. I thought I was navigating that. Okay, that's a provision for the flesh. And I'm not ashamed to tell you that because it's for my good. And my hope is that you would have ears to hear if he does the same for you. It should be Normative. For the Spirit to show us, then call us to repentance and bring us into the light. That isn't what bad people do. It's what Christians do. If you have one and two and three year periods where you're never called out of anything, we should sit down because there's a problem. And, and, and I would, I, I would, I would wager that you're asleep. It should be normative maybe you legit have already done that and, and God in, in your last season has called you out of something and, and brought you out of just something that was, was stealing your joy or your affection, then, then praise God for that. If that's the case, praise him. Man, thank you that you've already shown that to me. Thank you that I didn't get further down the line before you, before you brought it up. Thank you that you've done a good work, that you still care for me. Again, self-reflection and repentance are supposed to be normative in the, in the, in the people of God. As we close, it's the, man, you guys can come back up. It's the hope that we would be a people guilty of loving well. Not in some vague sentimentality, but in word and deed. That people would look at us and be like, there's some weird people. But man, they're loving weird people. That, that would be the hope. I don't, I don't know how many people God will give us, but that we, we would love well and people would see the love of Christ and the beauty of Christ through who we are. In order to be a people guilty of loving well, though, we're going to have to aggressively fight our flesh, guard our hearts, be vigilant about our lives, and just pay attention to the things that take our affection and our time. Again, Paul invites us to, not with a hammer, but the leading of a shepherd. Hey man, if you're asleep, if there's provisions of the flesh, would, would you walk out of that today? We'll take communion today as we begin to close and there's cups in the front table. Anyone can take as long as your faith is in Christ. You don't have to be a member here. But here's the beauty. If you come in and you hear this and you're like, man, I have been asleep and I've been like not paying attention. I haven't been vigilant or, or vigilant or digilant, Or I, I've, been, I've been known that God's been calling me out of something for a while I've been ignoring it you can still come to the table and know that the broken body and flesh of Jesus is still there for you. He's come and say, hey man, I I paid for it all already. Come and and be built up knowing that there's still a sacrifice for you even in this moment. Even as I'm walking you out of being asleep and walking you out of darkness, it's okay because I've paid it all already. Come and receive life. Come and receive peace. Remember what I have done. I'm not surprised. I knew. I've been calling you for a while. Come and take and be filled. That would be our hope as you take 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he is betrayed, he took bread. and When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As you take today, you're proclaiming the reality of a real sacrifice made by a perfect Savior. If you've walked in darkness, if your patterns have been off, he's still sufficient for all of that. You don't have to hang your head in shame. You don't, have to, uh, you don't have to run away like in the garden. You get to come to the table victoriously going, oh, that you would correct and love me well and that you would still pay the price for me. Thank you, you're good. Continue working in my heart. That's the hope for us. Take the elements, be built up, and vigilantly see who you are and how you're living. We you stand with me?